You're listening to Vatican Radio. In this week's edition of Gospel Truth, the late Jill Bevilacqua and Sean Patrick Lovett bring us readings and reflections from the Gospel of St. Mark, chapter 9, verses 2 through 10, for the second Sunday of Lent. Jesus took Peter, James, and John off by themselves with him and led them up a high mountain. He was transfigured before their eyes, and his clothes became dazzlingly white, whiter than the work of any bleacher could make them. Elijah appeared to them along with Moses. The two were in conversation with Jesus. Then Peter spoke to Jesus, Rabbi, how good it is for us to be here. Let us erect three booths on this site, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He hardly knew what to say, for they were all overcome with awe. A cloud came, overshadowing them, and out of the cloud a voice. This is my son, my beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, only Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, he strictly enjoined them not to tell anyone what they had seen before the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept this word of his to themselves, though they continued to discuss what to rise from the dead meant. From the Mount of Temptation and the sojourn of Jesus in the desert before beginning his public life, we take a great leap of some 18 months or so to the Mount of the Transfiguration and the extraordinary event which took place there. Although the version we've just heard doesn't mention it, Others precede the opening words with six days later, or after six days. Luke actually says eight days. Let's say a week then. And if we go back and read the previous verses in all three accounts, Matthew, Mark and Luke, we'll see that a week before his transfiguration, our Lord gave the apostles some pretty shattering news. They were in Caesarea Philippi, where Peter made his declaration that Jesus was Christ, Son of the living God, and where Jesus blessed him, changing his name from Simon to Peter, declaring that he would build his church on this rock and give him the keys of the kingdom. But immediately afterwards, he began to talk of his passion and death, and although he didn't mention what kind of death, he used the word cross in a phrase we know well, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And before we climb that mountain to contemplate Christ in his glory, let's hear what Justin, the second century martyr, had to say about the cross. It's been called the earliest example of Christian symbolism. The cross of the criminal, the cross of the Christian, writes Maisie Ward, is also a figure wrought into the very pattern of things. Think for a moment and ask yourself if the business of the world could be carried on without the figure of the cross. The sea cannot be crossed unless the sign of victory, the mast, remains unharmed. Without it there's no ploughing. Neither diggers nor mechanics can do their work without tools of this shape. The human figure is distinguished from that of a brute beast solely by having an upright posture and the ability to extend the arms and also by the nose through which the creature gets his breath, which is set at right angles to the brow and displays just the shape of the cross. 
Caesarea Philippi is an ancient city at the foot of Mount Hermon in the north of Israel, on the road leading to the Golan Heights. Mount Hermon, the highest mountain in the Holy Land, is always covered with snow. For this reason, with its snow fields and its miles of desolation, writes one, it has been believed by some to be the Mount of the Transfiguration. But Christian tradition has always placed the event on Mount Tabor, which was considered sacred even in the Old Testament. A verse in Deuteronomy was interpreted as referring to Tabor. They shall call the people unto the mountain. They shall offer sacrifices of righteousness. The area around the mountain was also the scene of some fierce battles in biblical times. The clash between Deborah and Barak, who had grouped their army on the mountain slope, and Sisera's war chariots down in the Jezreel Valley. It was also the scene of an incident in the Battle of Gideon against the Midianites. If it was on this mountain that he chose to reveal himself in his glory, Tabor must have quietened down considerably by our Lord's time. This is how today's guidebook describes it. An isolated mountain in the eastern Lower Galilee, well known for its dome-shaped form, its location on an important intersection between the international Via Maris, joining Egypt with Damascus and local roads, has made Mount Tabor important since early times. Moreover, its unique shape captured the imagination of ancient peoples who attributed divine qualities to the mountain. Since the 4th century, Mount Tabor has been one of the holiest Christian sites in the Holy Land. Early pilgrims used to climb the difficult slopes of the mountain, aided by the 4,300 steps cut into the rock. But even today, Tabor doesn't seem to be much more accessible if we're to go by our guide. A winding and rather difficult road leads to the summit of Mount Tabor. It's open to small vehicles only, and visitors coming by bus may reach the top by a taxi service, available at the parking lot at the foot of the mountain. Once the summit is reached, a magnificent view unfolds, encompassing all the lower Galilee. It was not for a view, however, that Jesus took his friends up this high mountain, as both Matthew and Mark describe it. Mount Hermon is over four times as high as Tabor, which is less than 2,000 feet. But Tabor it seems to have been. And so, from the foothills of Hermon in the north, Jesus and the apostles made their way to the plain of Esdralon, way to the southwest of the Sea of Galilee. It would certainly have taken them the best part of a week, which explains the introductory after six days. And leaving the other nine at the bottom, Jesus took the chosen three up the mountain, off by themselves, to pray. And as he prayed, writes Luke, the aspect of his face was changed. And in all kinds of different expressions we read what cannot be truly expressed. His face shone like the sun, and his garments became white as light, white as snow, brilliant as lightning, dazzlingly white, whiter than any earthly bleacher could make them, so as no fuller upon earth can make white. Fuller? 
Years ago, if someone had mentioned Fuller's to me, I'd have thought they were talking about my favourite peppermint lumps, or the cake shops of that name. Alas, long gone now, together with many other good things, gone with the wind. But Fuller's were people who used to cleanse and thicken cloth by beating and washing it. In a fulling mill, the cloth was pressed between rollers and cleansed with soap, or Fuller's earth a chemical substance known, for those who like their definition scientifically exact, as a hydrous silicate of alumina, in other words, an old-fashioned detergent. Scholars tell us that the whiteness of our Lord's clothes is a sign that he belongs to the heavenly world. Angels appear in white. Mark writes that when the women go to the tomb to embalm Jesus, they see a young man in a white robe and white are the robes of the martyrs in the Apocalypse. The people who have been through the great persecution and have washed their robes white again in the blood of the Lamb. White has always fascinated and is variously defined, from being an absence of colour to a reflection of all colours together. Rosemary Veery writes this of a foggy, frosty day in her garden. The white rims of frozen fog round the evergreen Berberis looked like the white edge on the wings of a large blue butterfly. It made me wonder what exactly white is. And I discovered that it is sometimes caused by physical effects. It can be due to air spaces within tissues where the reflection of light makes an impression of whiteness. The white or grey of white diamond is the reflection from the innumerable hairs which cover the leaves, with air between each. Snow and frost, made up of colourless ice crystals with air spaces, have the same effect, whiteness. A solid block of ice is colourless, but ice full of air bubbles becomes white. Up there on Mount Tabor, the apostles were hardly in any condition to be analysing the quality of the light or whiteness that was dazzling them. Luke even writes that they were heavy with sleep, but they kept awake and saw his glory and the two men standing with him. Two men, yes, and what men? Suddenly, write both Luke and Matthew, Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus, writes Mark. Luke specifies that Moses and Elijah were appearing in glory, so they too were dazzlingly white. And returning to the white theme, if we remember that Mark was writing his gospel, ghosting, if you like, for Peter, was his reference to the brilliance of Christ's clothing perhaps a detail which would have impressed Peter's mother-in-law? For if, as it seems, Peter lived with her, she would no doubt have done his washing, and so... Write it down, Mark, whiter than white. How the apostles knew who the two men were, we're not told. Was Moses, perhaps, holding the tables of the law? Only in paintings, and afterwards. And Elijah. Now, Moses seems familiar to us all. We probably think we'd recognise him anywhere. But what about Elijah? Greatest of the prophets, we can find his portrait, vibrant with life and energy, in the book of Ecclesiasticus.
Then the prophet Elijah arose like a fire, his word flaring like a torch. It was he who brought famine on them and who decimated them in his zeal. By the word of the Lord he shut up the heavens. He also three times brought down fire. How glorious you were in your miracles, Elijah! Has anyone reason to boast as you have? Taken up in the whirlwind of fire, in a chariot with fiery horses, designated in the prophecies of doom to allay God's wrath before the fury breaks, to turn the hearts of fathers toward their children and to restore the tribes of Jacob. Happy shall they be who see you and those who have fallen asleep in love. That tender last line hardly seems to belong, but how sweet it is. As the two men were leaving Jesus, we read in Luke, Peter spoke, declaring how wonderful it was for him and his companions to be there, and suggesting the setting up of three booths or tents. But, writes Luke, he did not know what he was saying, and Mark, he hardly knew what to say. And not only Peter, but all three were overcome with awe. Then came the climax of the vision, and to emphasise the solemnity of the account, the apostles are overshadowed, in Matthew's account, by a bright cloud, while Peter's suggestion fades into insignificance. And here a note from a Cistercian monk reminds us. The true lesson of Mount Tabor is not the one people often draw from it, in the mystery of the Transfiguration, the essential thing for the Apostles was not so much having glimpsed Jesus in glory, but having received this command from the very lips of the Father, This is my Son, my Beloved. Listen to Him. And a present-day scholar confirms this view. The imperative, listen to him, takes up again the theme in Deuteronomy. Yahweh, your God, will raise up for you a prophet like myself, from among yourselves, from your own brothers. To him you must listen. Jesus, therefore, is the true prophet, whom the disciples must listen to. This, however, is also a way of saying that Jesus is superior to Moses and Elijah. He alone is the decisive figure for salvation. And in the liturgical year, we are reminded. What is told of Christ in the Gospel will be our lot as well, that is, participation in his Pasch, or passage, through suffering to joy. In order that we may be able to hold fast to this Easter message amid our earthly darkness, the opening prayer bids us ask, God our Father, help us to hear your Son. Enlighten us with your word, that we may find the way to your glory. David Smith, in The Days of His Flesh, writes, The real import of this wondrous incident emerges only when it's recognised that it was an anticipation of the resurrection. By the power of God, the body of Jesus assumed, for a season, the conditions of the resurrection life. And the writer suggests that the transfiguration had a dual purpose. It was designed, in the first instance, to strengthen Jesus and nerve him for the dread ordeal which awaited him. It was like a vision of home to the exile, like a foretaste of rest to the weary traveller. 
In relation to the disciples, it was designed to reconcile them to the incredible and repulsive idea of Messiah's sufferings by revealing to them the glories that should follow. The Feast of the Transfiguration, celebrated on August the 6th, first appeared back in the 5th century in the East Syrian liturgy and then in the other Eastern churches. Only in the 10th century did it reach the Franco-Roman Empire. Our liturgist writes, The keen interest felt at that time in the Holy Land and the various sites connected with the life of Jesus may have contributed to the spread of the feast. It was taken into the calendar of the Universal Church in 1457 under Pope Calixtus III. The Basilica of the Transfiguration on Mount Tabor is recognised as being one of the most beautiful churches in the Holy Land. The architect was an Italian named Antonio Barluzzi, responsible for many of the shrines in the custody of the Franciscans. Traveller H. V. Morton, who met Barluzzi shortly before the latter's death in 1960, wrote, All Barluzzi's shrines attempt to express an emotional response to the Gospel story. Already a practised architect, when the First World War ended, he felt a call to the priesthood, but his confessor in Rome told him to go to Palestine and rebuild the shrines. And so he did, living while he worked as a Franciscan with the Franciscans. Barluzzi kept the form of the Byzantine Basilica which once stood on Mount Tabor and incorporated fragments of it into his own church. In the crypt are the altar and parts of its walls. The rock floor of the crypt is believed to be the spot on which Jesus stood during his transfiguration. And in our own time, Pope John Paul II added five new mysteries to the rosary, the mysteries of light. Should we be surprised that one of them is dedicated to the Transfiguration? <laughs> 